through the end of 26. I am jumping over a little bit, uh, but I'm going to sum it up for you here. Uh, because it's, uh, it's a series of hearings. Paul has been taken into Roman custody uh, by the machinations of his Jewish enemies as he returned to Jerusalem and was there uh, celebrating the feast that was going on. The Jews uh, accused him, falsely accused him of some things. And he has already, at the point we're about to read, he has had a hearing before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, in Jerusalem, and they could not make any charges stick, and some people have plotted to assassinate him. And in order to save him from assassination, he's been transported by the Romans to Caesarea, which is about 70 miles away from Jerusalem on the coast. It was the administrative center for the uh, Roman province in which, in which Jerusalem was. In Caesarea, Paul is going to be kept in custody for over two years uh, during the, the, uh, the governorship of two different men. He will have hearings before both of those men, uh, both of those successive governors. The first is in chapter 24. Paul appears before Felix, and he defends himself against the accusations made against him, same as was the previous hearing against in, in the Sanhedrin. And uh, Felix, even though doesn't find anything wrong, continues to keep him in custody for two years, it tells us, there in Caesarea. He wants to do the Jews a favor, and he also is hoping that Paul will give him a bribe. Then in Acts 25, a new governor takes over, whose name is Festus, and we'll encounter today. Festus is really interested in, in the beginning of his, of his governorship to curry the favor of the Jews. Uh, he's not really interested in, in administering justice so much in this particular situation, Paul's situation. In fact, he's willing uh, at the, be, the request of the Jews to send Paul back to Jerusalem where they want to murder him. And he gives Paul that option. But Paul appeals to Caesar, which was his right as a Roman citizen. And before uh, Festus, who agrees to send him to Caesar, before Festus sends Paul to Rome, he entertains uh, the king of the Jews, King Agrippa. King Agrippa was kind of a figurehead. Uh, he represented the Jewish nation. He was under the Roman governor, so he didn't have a lot of power. But Festus wants to uh, have good relations with Agrippa and his wife Bernice. And so he entertains, uh, Festus entertains Agrippa and Bernice. And this is where we pick up our reading today, Acts 25:13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion 
and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to point you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass." 
that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy, inspired, and errant word. Let's pray together. Lord, we do pray that you would help us to understand these things. Give us spiritual insight. Help us, Lord, to have the eyes of our hearts opened so that we might see Christ in all of his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the resurrection narratives that we have in the Bible, Jesus is buried in a tomb and a stone is rolled over the entrance. And his discoverers, when they, his disciples and followers, when they go to the visit the gravesite, discover that Sunday morning that the stone has been rolled away. Why was the stone rolled away? Was it so Jesus could get out? The answer is no. The reason the stone was rolled away was so that we could go in and see that he was no longer there, that he was risen from the dead. You know, after Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to the disciples. He came into a room where all the doors were locked, so he could have easily passed through uh, that uh, stone that was rolled in, the, in front of the tomb. No, the, the way, only way that the followers of Christ and the disciples could get in and see that Christ was arisen was that the stone could be rolled away. And today, they want to, we want to see the resurrection for ourselves, to be able to go in and, and examine it and look at it and think about it and to see the, what significance it has for us living today. Now, Festus here in our passage summarizes the dispute between Paul and his accusers in verse 19 of chapter 25. He says, uh, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Jesus was dead. They, they all agreed on that. That wasn't under dispute. But Paul asserts that Jesus is now alive. And this is where the dispute lay. Festus is correct. This is the question. Is Jesus still dead or did he physically rise from the dead? In every hearing that Paul uh, has experienced, he has been saying that this was the crux of the matter. 
back in when he was first put into custody by the Romans and he faced the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. He said in chapter 23, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And that's exactly what Felix affirms. And in, uh, in chapter 24, back in, uh, before Felix, he says in verse 14, this I confess to you that according to the way which they called a sect, his accusers, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Again, pointing to the resurrection. And before Festus and Agrippa, we saw it here in verses 6 through 8, I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? The majority of Jews believed that there was going to be a resurrection one day. The only people who didn't believe it were the Sadducees. Now, Sadducees were the controlling party of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. They did not believe that there was going to be a resurrection. You recall the, the argument that they tried to trap Jesus in when they said a, man, you know, a woman married a, a man and he died and then uh, another one and another one and another one and they all, all the husbands died. Whose uh, husband will she be in heaven? Trying to make fun of his belief in the resurrection and, and try to paint an absurd picture. And of course, Jesus criticizes them for their lack of faith and believing all that the prophets had, had said about it. You can actually go, not only is, is Paul pointing constantly to the fact that the dispute is about the resurrection, you can look throughout the book of Acts. And the resurrection of Jesus and its consequences is the central theme of every sermon recorded there, no matter who the preacher was, whether it was Peter or Stephen or anyone else. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, Paul states the vital importance of the resurrection in the strongest terms possible. You've heard these words before. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's strong. This is a grand waste of time if Christ has not been raised from the dead. He goes on to say in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. A Christianity without the resurrection of Christ is pitiful. It's pointless. It's vanity, Paul says. That's how important it is. Christianity stands or falls on this doctrine. That's what point Paul is making there. If Christ has not been raised, he says, first of all, there's no forgiveness of sins. Romans 4.25 states that Jesus was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. And what that means is when God the Father raised Christ from the dead, it was a demonstration that he accepted Christ's suffering for sin. It was the full payment made for sin, and, and the Father's favor now rested on Christ, no longer the wrath that he experienced on the cross, 
but, but, but God the Father's favor. And that acceptance directed towards Christ is, is also given to those who believe. Because we, as believers, are united to Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. All that he experienced for us is ours. And that's why the resurrection results in our justification. So if Christ is not raised from the dead, then his sacrifice is not accepted. And there is no forgiveness of sin. Paul also tells uh, the Corinthians that if there's no resurrection of of Christ, then there's no hope for anybody who dies. They have perished. And this is what separates Christianity from all the other religions of the world. All the other religions will tell you what path you have to follow in order to achieve the desired end, whether it is heaven or nirvana or paradise or oneness with the universe or self-actualization. Christianity, on the other hand, says that God became man in order to live the perfect life, bear the curse for sin on the cross, and rise victorious over death. He did this for sinful people like you and me. He came as our substitute. He did what we could not do. He doesn't just tell us what to do in order to be saved. He came and he did it himself. Jesus was not simply a good teacher. A lot of people say, oh yeah, he's a great teacher and I, and I like the things that he says. But that's not what Jesus was all about. He came to accomplish something for us in our place. And rising from the dead means that he has accomplished all that we need in order to live eternally. It means that we have hope beyond this life. Now if Jesus is dead and did not rise from the dead, did not rise from the dead, then it does not matter which religion you follow. You can follow anyone you want because they all say the same thing, be a, be a good person. And that would be the sum total of Christianity without the resurrection. If you took the miraculous elements out of all the other religions of the world, some of them, like Buddhism, claims that that, uh, Buddha did some miraculous things, but you could take that out of those religions and it wouldn't change the religion at all. Because the religion isn't actually about what those leaders did, it's about what they're telling you to do. But Christianity... If you take the miraculous out of Christianity, especially that one great miracle of the resurrection of Jesus, then there's nothing specifically Christian left. There may be many admirable human things which Christianity shares with all the other systems in the world, but there would be nothing specifically Christian about it. Jesus didn't claim to be just a great teacher. He was a great teacher, no doubt about it. But he claimed to be the Son of God. And the resurrection vindicates that claim. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And being the Son of God, being the living Son of God with a physical body, he has a physical body, there is a man who is living next to the Father right now, Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God And he's going to return to earth. And he can do so because he is the Son of God. And he has a body. 
He will physically return to earth. And there will be a general resurrection where all the dead will be raised. Bodies will come up out of the grave. Paul affirmed that in 24.15. There will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, he says. And then after that, there will be judgment. The Son of God will bring judgment. And this was the message that was opposed by these opponents of Paul, that Christ was, uh, was risen. Now why? Why did they oppose this message? I mean, he points them to the scriptures, to the prophets, places like Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, that refer to Christ's suffering and his resurrection. Why didn't they get it? Why don't they get it today? Why do they oppose this message? Well, the Jews could not accept a suffering Messiah. That was a stumbling block to them. See, they, they didn't have a problem with the, with the idea of resurrection, per se, except the, except the Sadducees. What they had a problem with was the fact that Jesus died in the first place because they did not accept that the Messiah would die. They only thought of the Messiah as someone who was going to come along to them, the chosen people of God, and rescue them from the political oppression that they were under. He's going to ride in and support their cause and bring them back to the glory days of Israel. See, they, the problem they had was that they did not think the true Messiah would ever have the necessity to be resurrected because he would never die. He would not suffer. And that's what Paul points out to them in verses 22 through 23. To this day I've had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And that's another problem they had with it. See, to admit that he had to die was to admit that there was a necessity for his death. Why else would the Messiah die? In other words, see, they had to admit that they themselves needed saving, that they were sinners and, and needed a Savior. These religious leaders who were opposing Paul thought that they were righteous and that the Messiah would simply show up and promote their cause. And this is why Paul's going to the Gentiles was so offensive to them. They thought that the the Gentiles were cursed and that they were God's people. But Paul is lumping all of humanity in the same boat. Sinners needing forgiveness. And Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, has secured that with his life, death, and resurrection for all people. And he proclaims light to us today. Look at the difference Jesus told Paul that it makes. In verse 16, Jesus instructs Paul at his conversion experience, Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, and here's the key point, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those 
who are sanctified by faith in me. Now what is that last phrase meant? We understand that the forgiveness and deliverance from darkness and the power of Satan. Uh, what is this place among those who are sanctified by faith in me? Well, he's talking about the ultimate Christian hope, the resurrection in the last day. Many people, you know, they want to go to heaven when they die. Now, I was in Food Giant yesterday, and you know, they're, they're, this country song came on and said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. Maybe you're familiar with that song. It's kind of, kind of true uh, of a lot of people. Many people hope to go to heaven when they die, finally liberated from this world and everything physical. But that's not the ultimate Christian hope. Yes, when we die, our souls go to be with the Lord uh, and our bodies are buried in the ground. However, that's not the end. The ultimate hope is that one day Christ will return and our bodies will be resurrected and reunited with our souls and we will live with God in the new heavens and new earth. A real, physical, eternal life. Living a physical existence in a world as it was meant to be. Without the brokenness of sin and disease and death. Christ has conquered these things by his resurrection. That's what we look forward. That's what we mean when we state in the creed, I believe in the resurrection and the life everlasting. That's what we're looking forward to. And that makes a difference in the way that you live now. Martin Luther, they asked him, you know, if you knew you were about to die or the Lord was coming back soon, what would you do? He said, I'd plant a tree. What did he mean by that? He meant that he was looking forward uh, you know, to whatever he was doing you know, in this life, it was going to come to fruition in the next life, in the new heavens and new earth. What you do now will affect that later. But if Christ has not been raised, then there is no hope. I went to a funeral this past week of a family friend. Uh, he was 82 years old. I grew up, he was... Uh, one of my father's friends and his kids were are friends with me and we all grew up playing ball together, baseball, football, whatever, whatever time of year it was. And our dads were always the coaches. We had great dads. And I remember Mr. Brannon as being uh, a real strapping, thick man with big forearms and when he was in high school, he was an all-American basketball player and quite an athlete. But you see him in that coffin. He had been struggling with a disease for a long time and he was all shriveled up and he had almost wasted away to nothing, just a mere wisp of what he once was. And as one of his sons, my friend John, stood and talked about uh, how he had faith in Christ, something that I didn't even know that he professed faith in Christ, had prayed to, to the Lord, and he and his son had prayed together many times over the, the length of his illness. I rejoice to know that, that that shriveled up man would not remain shriveled up. One day he's going to be even stronger and better than he ever was at his peak in his first life. See, that's the hope that we have as Christians. 
we will have a real physical existence and all the pain and the sorrow and the death and the loss that we experience in this life will be no more. That's what we look forward to. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then it, there is no hope. So this is the most important question. Not only was it the question disputed between Paul and his opponents, but it's the question for you and, I, you and me as well. Do you really believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead? And if so, have you turned from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that you may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would help us to see these things clearly. Help us to embrace you, to turn from darkness and from our sin and from the power of Satan to you. Lord, we pray that if anyone has never experienced that, the power of the resurrection working in their lives, we pray that you would grant them the forgiveness of sins and a place among your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.